What a wonderful turnout today. Thank you guys for being here. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to talk to you about the Gospel of John. When we talked about Mark, I told you it was one of my favorite Gospels, and it was. Uh, When we talked about Matthew, I told you it really was a special Gospel to me in, in some meaningful ways. I get so excited to teach on it. That's true. When we talked about Luke, I told you why it's one of my favorite Gospels. I get really excited to teach about it. That's true. But I got to tell you about John. It's one of my favorite Gospels. And I'm so excited to teach about it. I've got a lot to say. And I just saw a gentleman in here that brings up a whole new John story for me that, that I don't know that I fit into today, but I may fit it in next week. But I want to talk to you a little bit about, uh, uh, start personal for a moment. And let me tell you that I was really, really fortunate in life to be able to go to a school called Lipscomb University in Nashville, Tennessee. And at Lipscomb, in the tradition I grew up in, they were able to combine an undergraduate degree and a seminary degree. So I took over the course of my my studies a little over 60 hours of, of biblical studies. And those are classes that ranged from theology to practical aspects of ministry to uh, a lot of intense Bible study, a number of the classes being taught in Greek and Hebrew, and was able to put together a degree program that that was really wonderful for me. It gave me a great sense of appreciation for matters. In fact, I almost left from there, and instead of going to law school, uh, uh, went to preach instead but decided ultimately to go to law school, and and here I am now. But the process of being there was incredible. I also had a wonderful chance to worship at a fantastic church, Belmont Christian Assemblies. The preacher, Don Finto, was a marvelous preacher. Um, Our worship leader, uh, Michael W. Smith, Um, this is before he's famous. He hadn't put out an album or anything like that. He's just writing these incredible songs that we got to enjoy. Or Brown Bannister, who was the producer for Amy Grant, to sit in church and have Amy Grant sitting behind you singing with her voice or going down front to sing a new song coming out on her album. It was an inspirational time and a time that really drew you into growing before the Lord. Another benefit of it was, in addition to Lipscomb, right down the street was Vanderbilt, or still is, Vanderbilt University. They had a divinity school. They would frequently bring in speakers like Lipscomb would and like other uh, facilities and places would. And so I had a chance to hear some really interesting and challenging lectures. I heard a lecture by Harvard Divinity School's professor Gordon Kaufman. Gordon Kaufman uh, is famous for some of his perspectives on on church and faith and, and especially an, an idea of who God is or who we should teach that God is. And he taught a, 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 gave a, a lecture entitled, Developing a Concept of God for the 20th Century. And I went to it interested, uh, thinking, well, we know who God is. God's revealed by the Bible. Yet what Gordon Kaufman said was, is in essence, as I understood it, The Bible does not represent but one perspective of a historic group of who God is. We know that that's not an accurate perspective of who God is. In fact, there may be some God out there, but who he is or she is, we don't really know. The key to his message was, we live in a day where nuclear bombs could blow up the world. 
So we better just tell people he's a God of love. Or else something bad may happen. One minister of a particular denomination held his hand up during the Q&A afterwards and said, I've been feeling guilty over lying to my church about the existence of God. Thank you for alleviating my guilt. Now I know that I'm serving mankind by teaching the idea that there's a God, even though I don't think there is. You hear lectures like that and they challenge you. They also invigorate you. I heard a lecture by a gentleman named Udo Middleman, who's just uh, recently committed to coming to speak in our library this October coming up. Udo Middleman is the son-in-law of Francis Schaeffer, married uh, Francis Schaeffer's oldest daughter, I think, runs the Francis Schaeffer Foundation, is trained as a lawyer before he became a theologian and a philosopher. An amazing man who gave a speech on the monster that surrounds us culturally and what we have to fight it. And he talked about how the world is this fast-flowing river and we live in it with all of its problems and all of its mess and the tragedies that occur. And that God has not left us just to be swept away by the current, but God has given us tools and things we can use to help fight the horrible atrocities of the fallen world. He's given us medicine. So that we can show God's love and compassion and desire that people not really be sick. Sickness is not God's will. God didn't make us to be sick. We're sick as a consequence of sin. He's given us technology to enable us to feed more people than we would ordinarily be able to feed. It was a marvelous lecture. And so I graduated with all of these things. I went on to law school and in law school I started teaching at church. I taught a a class of college kids. Um, We had 120 or 130 folks in this class. And I got to teach and I loved it so much. I graduated from law school. I moved to Houston to practice law. And I started going to church at the Bering Drive Church of Christ in the Galleria area. And our minister there, our pulpit minister, was Bill Love, who's now passed away. A marvelous preacher. A marvelous man of God. And I told Bill Love when I taught classes there, I taught the, uh, a number of different classes. And, and I told Bill one Sunday, I was talking to him, I said, you know, I think I'm going to start writing and publishing some of these things. Much like I write these lessons I give you now. And Bill looked at me and he started, he's got, he had a real wry chuckle. And he kind of chuckled and says, I, I would not do that if I were you. And I said, why is that? He said, how old are you? I said, 24, 25, whatever I was at the time. He says, I would not want to read anything I wrote when I was 24 or 25. He said, you will reach the age of 30 or 40, and you'll really wish you had not done that. You'll find it quite embarrassing. And I thought, okay, uh, I won't write it. Now, I'm sure there are some tapes floating around because a lot of those messages were taped. I'm sure there are some tapes floating around of things that I would be quite embarrassed about in my... Heavens, I started writing these things in my 40s and I found stuff on our class website from 8 and 10 years ago that I wish I could figure out how to get off because I've changed my mind since then. So uh, uh, I took that from Bill and it was a, a very good lesson for me. Here's the lesson. There is a measure of depth and perspective 
that comes only with seasons of reflection. Okay? There is a measure of depth and perspective that comes only with seasons of reflection. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't valid, wonderful, marvelous things and great energy and great ideas that the young can get out there and teach and share and encourage. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that there is a measure of depth and perspective that comes only with seasons of reflection. Now, this is the best overview I can give you of the Gospel of John. Let me tell you why. John did not write his Gospel immediately as the other Gospels were being written. The earlier Gospels of Mark, Matthew, and Luke were written... From my perspective, based on what I've read and my, my, my jury verdict, is that they were written quite early in a finished form. Matthew, I think, took notes of Jesus' sermon and teachings while Jesus was teaching. I think those notes were available for Luke. I think they were available for Paul. I think they were available for a number of people. Available for Mark. I think Mark put Peter's gospel into writing sometime in the 50s. I think Matthew probably shortly thereafter put together his gospel. I think Luke put together his gospel in the 60s. But the gospel of John I don't think was written for several more decades. John was an old man when he wrote his gospel. And John has a measure of depth and perspective in his gospel that comes only with seasons of reflection. John has, um, um, I I, I don't know how else to say it. Let's do it this way. If we take the gospel of John, we can look at it from the perspective of of theology, some will call it, some scholars call it the theological gospel because it's got so much that comes from, um, the, the, the idea of meditation comes from a cow chewing its cud. I know that may be gross, but if you're a cow, I don't think it is. The idea that you eat a little bit and you swallow it and then you bring it back and you eat a little more and then you swallow it and then you bring it back and then you eat a little more. Okay, we used to have a Mexican food restaurant in Lubbock where we did the same thing. But that's the idea behind meditation, okay? Meditation. Mom's incensed. She said, that is not the kind of food we had in Lubbock. No, sir. That was Slayton. Um, The uh, meditation's that idea. It's something you chew on. You swallow it, you bring it back, you chew on it, you swallow, you bring it back, you chew on it. The Gospel of John has a lot of chewing that's been gone. This is written by a witness who walked with Christ, who learned from Christ, who took instruction from Christ, whose life was transformed by Christ, who then spent the next 40, 50 years 
or more teaching about Jesus into old age. So old, in fact, that there are indications within the gospel that some folks believed a rumor that John was going to live until Jesus' return. Clearly the last living apostle. Now, if we want to talk about it, let's contrast the gospel of John with some other gospels. The synoptic gospels. Remember from the Greek, two words, to see things the same way. To optic them the synergistic way, the same way. Same type of of, uh, uh, words come from the Greek. So, the synoptic gospels all follow the same basic form. They're nuanced differences. It's like Rembrandt's self-portraits. Each one has a different emphasis or highlight or feature that it's, it's driving for. Same with those Gospels. But they all, look at them just in the structure. They're like a funnel. They've got Jesus starting out in Galilee. And they funnel Jesus from Galilee en route to Jerusalem, and Jesus doesn't get to Jerusalem till the very end of each of those Gospels. And it funnels Jesus from Galilee, down through Samaria and the environs, down to Judea, down en route to Jerusalem, and finally to Calvary. The crucifixion, the empty tomb, the resurrection and appearance. And this is the way all three of the synoptic Gospels are written. John's not that way. John doesn't follow their structure. If those three synoptic gospels are funneling Jesus to Jerusalem, John's doing something different. John is doing hopscotch. John's got Jesus in Galilee, and by the second chapter, he's in Jerusalem. Then he goes back to Galilee, and then he goes back to Jerusalem. And then he goes back to Galilee, and then he goes back to Jerusalem, where he stays To the crucifixion. John gives us three Passovers. Not one. John has Jesus clearing the temple in John chapter 2. John's got Jesus going. For John, there's a rhythm and a cycle of Jesus in Jerusalem. Now I'll also tell you that John is a numbers guy. And by that, I don't mean he was a bookie. But John, you can't read the revelation of John. And and I know scholars disagree over whether the Apostle John wrote John. We'll deal with that later. Whether the Apostle John is John the Revelator. We'll deal with that later. All of those matters we'll deal with later. This time, just assume with me that they're the same. But you can't read Revelation without seeing this numbers stuff happening over and over and over. The number seven, 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 seven. The number three. The angels are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Who was and who is and who is to come. Things are in triplets when they talk about spiritual things and God. Same with his epistles. These three witnesses agree. So John is one of these, well, John's got Jesus going to Jerusalem three times. Because there is a significant holiness to that. 
John has written in some marvelous ways that I'm excited for us to unfold over the next few weeks. So I hope you'll join me with it. Today, you've got probably a two-part lesson in front of you. If you're following along saying, he's got three hours to go. (laughs) Don't worry. I just, uh, and, and Mark, Craber told me, he said, Lanier, just do eight to ten pages a Sunday. It messes everything up. When we've got to hand out the same lesson the next week, people don't brand, blah, 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 blah. I quit listening. <laughs> but I'm glad to hear he is listening. Um, I tried to do this as one lesson, and I just got in a roll, and I couldn't quit. So this is a two-week lesson, don't panic. But in the process of writing this lesson, I wanted to start out, and I want us to appreciate a little bit of what's behind the writing. So we go back to Irenaeus. Irenaeus was the, the head pastor, bishop of Lyon, what is now Lyon, France. It wasn't called Lyon at the time, it was in Gaul. Lugdunum, I think, was the name of the town at the time, the Roman name. But we know it as Lyon, France. And Irenaeus was originally from Smyrna, over in Turkey, in Asia Minor, the area where, evidently, John lived out the last of his days. The island of Patmos is just offshore from there, where he wrote Revelation, or received the Revelation. So, Irenaeus around 175 A.D., is writing about a contact he had, and we looked at this in an earlier class, but a contact he had with Polycarp. And here's what he said. I am able to describe the very place in which the blessed Polycarp sat and the accounts which he gave of his intercourse or interchange with John and, and with the others who had seen the Lord. There's some indication Matthew may have been over in that area. Philip may have been over in that area evangelizing as well. And what he heard, what Polycarp heard from them concerning the Lord, concerning the Lord's miracles, concerning the Lord's teaching, having received them, from eyewitnesses of the word of life. Very Johannan Johannan, uh, expression. It's a real John language. Polycarp related all things in harmony with the scriptures. Now, Irenaeus, in the scriptures, he includes four gospels. Matthew, Mark, and John. So, Irenaeus heard Polycarp describe his first-hand accounts from John. They're in harmony with the scriptures. Poly, uh, Irenaeus also talks about how afterwards John, the disciple of the Lord, and by afterwards, this is in the reference to the gospels that were written. After Mark, after Matthew, after Luke, after those gospels were written, John, the disciple of the Lord, who also had leaned upon his breast... That's a reference in the John Gospel to John being the one who leans on the breast of Jesus. Doesn't mean, you know, it's not this. But they would lay down to eat. You would recline to eat, kind of like this. And so it would be the one on the this side of Jesus as they're reclining to eat. And they sit there. Okay? 
We're not doing that, by the way, at the Passover. We will be seated at tables. John did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. If you ever have a cause to go to Turkey and you do not go to the ruins of Ephesus, you do yourself an injustice. It is so amazing. The most amazing ruins you'll ever see in your life. Anyway, so Irenaeus records that John wrote this while ministering in Ephesus. By the way, you go through the Gospel of John and you will find reverberations of Paul's teaching to the Ephesians. But that's for another class. If we throw up a map, we can see, you see the boot of Italy. You see Greece is the next dip down. Google map was nice enough to give us an A right on the spot of Ephesus there in Turkey. You can see it. The Isle of Patmos is off from there, not far from the Isle of Patmos. You can see Turkey. And uh, uh, that's where John ministered and according to Irenaeus where he wrote his gospel from. Now in addition to Irenaeus, Clement who's writing somewhere in the 198 to 202 range for this work. Clement's in Alexandria. By the way, if we go back to the map, Alexandria is down there. It's a coastal town that was built by Alexander the Great. It's one of the three largest cities in the world at the time. And it's uh, uh, Clement is the bishop there, runs the school, the catechismal school. Bishop Clement of Alexandria. Egypt, by the way, is where... The oldest fragment of the New Testament has been found. It dates from about 130 A.D. It's called the John Rylands Fragment. It's just a few verses on the front and a few verses on the back that are still left. But you know what what book it's from in the New Testament? John. The Gospel of John. The Gospel of John within 30 years or so clearly made it down into Egypt. Copies of it. And Clement of Alexandria from Egypt had this to say. Last of all, in other words, after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, last of all, John, perceiving that the external facts had been made plain in the gospel, being urged by his friends and inspired by the Spirit, composed a spiritual gospel. There's a measure of depth and perspective that only comes with. From age. John's gospel was not a mere retelling of the facts. We already had that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It was already being circulated. The world already had that. John wrote his gospel urged by his friends and inspired by the Holy Spirit. But he wrote a spiritual gospel. Now the scholars differ over what that might mean. But it clearly means, from Clement's perspective, that the gospel that John wrote is from a different perspective. It's a measured gospel with a measure that comes only from time and perspective. John preached for 40 or 50 years this gospel. He ministered to countless people. God used him in countless circumstances and situations. And his message grew in appreciation. Do we believe for one moment that John's walk with God was the same on his deathbed as it was in 33 AD? 
Of course not. God throws in all of us. John grew in his appreciation. Now, I'm not minimizing the role of the Holy Spirit in the inspiration of Scripture. But this is part of what the Holy Spirit was doing. The Holy Spirit did not inspire John to write this immediately. The Gospels, Scripture, is not just a product of God. It's a product of God and a product of man, both. It bears the inspiration of God, and it does exactly what God wants it to do, in exactly the form, exactly as God wants to communicate it. But it's got a fingerprint in the Gospel of John, a fingerprint of John. And you can see John in it. Just like you can look at the Gospel of Mark and see Peter. So, this is what John writes. And when we read John, we need to read it with, a, with an appreciation, like a, we are in a Southern Baptist church. And I'm a teetotaler, as it happens, from the Church of Christ. So I don't want to say like a fine wine, because I wouldn't have a clue what I'm really talking about. But, I do cheese. I don't, I don't do cheese anymore either. But I, I used to do cheese. Look, there are some things that get better with age. My wife. I've known her since middle school, but I've never had a day where I loved her anymore or she was anywhere finer than she is today. Okay? Some things, that's right. Some things, just as good as they were, just get better with age. So read this gospel and respect and appreciate it for what it says and look at it with fresh eyes. You with me? Now having said that, where was John from? Alright, let's do it this way. This is, not, this is not stump the band. This is supposed to be like a gimme. Okay. What is his nationality? Yeah, he's Jewish. Go ahead, say it. Be loud, be proud. Jewish. Okay, he's from what we would today call Israel. He was originally, occupationally, a fisherman. We got some work to do. We may need to scale back this lesson a little bit. We spent a little too much time in the Old Testament. All right, he, he is, so this is John. Now, Jesus changes him to be a fisher of men. But he's still John. He's living and ministering in Ephesus, a Greek world. But it's still John the Jew. He's got a gospel message of Jesus Christ. But he grew up with the Torah. So are you surprised to find out that in the Gospel of John, there are a number of very pronounced Hebrew themes. You should not be. It's almost as if he was listening to Hava Nagila the whole time he was writing. I mean, it's just, it, it goes to the beat. I've just pulled out a few. This is not a class, on, this, this is not a series on the Gospel of John. This is a New Testament survey. So we're, we're skipping the rock across the water. But we're going to get six or seven good skips out of John. But if you want to dig into John, put on your swim trunks, jump into the water head first and start looking.
I got some skips. So we're going to skip at some of the Hebrew themes for a moment. How about the themes, uh, plural, of creation? If you were going to memorize the Hebrew Old Testament, in Hebrew, you would probably at least make it through the first verse. Yeah, you may not make it all the way through, but that's a pretty good place to start. And you might get the Bareshit bara Elohim et hashamayim va'et ha'eretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the, let's see, that's all I did say. Bareshit bara Elohim et hashamayim va'et ha'eretz. Vaha'eretz, tohu vabohu. And the earth was void and without form. You could memorize some of that because that's right there. That's the first. That's where it starts. Look at the themes of creation. We'll start with the first one. In the beginning. Now, John's writing in Greek, or dictating, and it's being put in Greek. But in Greek, if we took the Greek Gospel of John, let's go to the Elmo, please. If we take the Greek Gospel of John, I shot this Xerox, and uh, yes... I had handwritten something above there, probably in one of these classes where I was making a point, and I thought, you know, people always tell me don't write in my Bibles, and it's very distracting, so I had to cover it up, and that's even more distracting, and in the process of doing that, the ribbon went here. There. But this is the way John starts. In... R-K. In is a really hard word to remember in the Greek. It means in. R-K. Archaeology. Archaic. What do you think R-K means? Yeah. In the beginning, way back there. Hain means was the word. N-R-K, Hain, Hologos. In beginning was the Word. The Word is already there. It's not in the beginning the Word was created. It's in the beginning was the Word. Word's already there. Now, if we were to take a Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament that had been around for centuries before John wrote, we could go to Genesis 1 and see what it, the Genesis 1 reads in the Greek Old Testament. And here it is. In. What's that mean? Arche. What's that mean? Epoison. He created. Ho, Theos. God. In the beginning, verb, God. The subject. In the beginning, verb, God. Now, I didn't want to write on that. <laughs> Having learned my lesson already once this morning. So I Xerox that page for you. Let's look at it. In beginning. This is uh, Genesis. 
in beginning, verb, God. Here is John. Uh, okay, Here's, hold on, hold on, bear with me, don't leave. Don't leave. No, 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 can't leave yet. Don't leave, don't leave, we're almost there. Okay, look, 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 look. Look at that. Okay? John on the top. Genesis on the bottom. I have something in my mouth. John on the top. Genesis on the bottom. In beginning. Verb. God. It's just John calls God the Word. It's the exact same. In the beginning was, Genesis tells us, was creating God. Not creating God. God is the nominative case. God is the noun, the subject. God was in the beginning. The Word was in the beginning. God was creating in the beginning. The Word was creating in the beginning. In fact, if we go on, John goes on to say, and Kaihologos, the Word, was, Hain, with God, and God was the Word. And the Word was with God, and God was the Word. The Word was God. You can put them either way. So, John starts, and his very first phrase is telling all of his readers, think Jewish. Now, there's a Greek theme here, too, that we'll talk about at some point. But today, we're sticking with the Jewish theme. Think Jewish. In the beginning was the Word. Now, I could go on, but you can read more about it in your lesson and some other stuff. Let's go back to the PowerPoint for a moment. Because there are more themes of creation, and I could get bogged down and teach on that alone for the whole thing. How about this? At the end of John, we read, these signs will accompany... Or no, not these signs will accompany. That's, sorry, lapse to Mark. Um, at the end of John, we read that uh, uh, Jesus did many more signs than these. But these have been written. Ah, here it is. If we could go to the Elmo. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Which are not written in this book. But these are written. These are written. Do you know how many miracles Jesus performs in John? Seven. The perfect number. I told you John's a numbers guy. Seven is a number that stood for perfection at that time. I've given you a footnote, but there's a ton more material on that and some of my other stuff I've written. Seven is a perfect number. So, John is saying, Jesus did a lot more signs, but I picked out seven. I put these seven out there so that you might believe. And actually, the Greek means continue to believe. It's not to bring you to belief. It's to keep you believing. So that you may daily believe, continue to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This is the sign 
these seven that I've written. Now, what else? How does this echo with your mind, Genesis? What was done in seven? Seven days of creation in the beginning. Day one, day two, three, four, five, six, seven. So you got seven days of creation. You've got seven seven miracles of Jesus. See, you don't do this necessarily just the first day out of the shoot. This takes years and decades. Now, John adds an insert to the appearances of Jesus. After Jesus' resurrection, Jesus appears first to the women at the tomb, or outside the tomb. John adds something no one else adds. So after the seven miracles, Jesus is dead, he's resurrected, and we read this. Um, There's a woman weeping, and she said, they've taken away my Lord, I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. She didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener. She said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. The gardener. Who's the first gardener in the Bible? Adam. After seven days of creation, in the book of Genesis, in the beginning, you have Adam in the garden as a gardener. In John's gospel, in the beginning, seven miracles, and then you have Jesus in the garden, supposed to be the gardener. Jesus brings a new creation. Jesus is the firstborn of many. Very Pauline Ephesians thoughts going through here. That Jesus, he existed. But Jesus, in earthly sense, brings a new creation. And that's what John sings to here in his own melody. So, if we go back to the um, uh, PowerPoint, please. In the beginning, these signs, and that gives us our third, supposing him to be the gardener. Theme creation. There are more. That's a good one for you to start with. How about the tabernacle theme? Do you remember the tabernacle? Moses on Sinai is told by God to build a tabernacle. Tabernacle means tent. Build a tent that's portable. It's going to have the place where the, the, the Holy of Holies is. It's going to have the place where the Ark of the Covenant goes. It's going to have the sacrificial area. It's going to be built exactly the way God wants it built. He tells Moses, don't think I'm giving you anything as a rounding error. You do it precisely the way I tell you to do it. And when the tent is built, God says, that's where I'll manifest my presence for Israel. And and the tent was erected, and it says, the glory of God descended upon the tent as a cloud. And nobody had the courage to go in there, not even Moses. And the glory of God, when the glory of God was in the tent, Israel stayed put in the wilderness. When the glory of God lifted and went, it was time to pull up the tent and follow the glory of God. Remember that? Let's go back to John. Um, We can do this in English, or we can do this in Greek. And I want you to see it in the Greek for a moment, because I think many of you have the English memorized. 
But we've been reading about, in the beginning, was the... Do you remember the Greek word for word? Logos, that's right. We say logos because we're from Lubbock, but it's logos. Look at verse 14. Ah, I should not be writing on this. I'm going to have to get another one. Wait, here it is. Ah, and that's got the ribbon. Okay, I'll use my finger. Chi and hologos, the word, sarks, flesh, agenito, became. And the word became flesh. Chi, eskenosin, eskenosin, excuse me, eskenosin, from skeneo. What do you think that is? And the word became flesh and tabernacled, pitched its tent among us. Now, our translations don't say that. They say dwell. But the word became flesh. Let's go back to the uh, PowerPoint, please. The word became flesh and pitched its tent among us. It tabernacled among us. It dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. See, the whole significance of the tabernacle, God's presence came down, and all of the people beheld the presence of God. They didn't know what it was. It was cloud. It was fuzzy. It was like scary. But in Jesus, the logos, the word that became, the word that was there in the beginning, that was God, became flesh and the, pitched its tent, tabernacled here, and we beheld his glory. We saw God on earth with his people. Over and over you'll see Jesus and Moses in reference to each other in the Gospel of John. I'll pull out just a couple that we can look at. If we can go back to the um, Elmo for a moment. Um, Let's see. Uh, Why don't we start with John 1? So this is John 1. And this is in that same section where the Logos became flesh and tabernacled among us. We've seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. It says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, there's a contrast here. This is, again, the Hebrew theme. This is Jesus and Moses in, in, in theme together. Moses brought the law. Jesus brought grace and truth. The law being truth. Uh, that's not our only passage. We have uh, uh, many more. Here's another example. Jesus in... Uh, John chapter 5 says the following. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Moses wrote of me. If you don't believe his writings, how are you going to believe my words? You go back to Moses. You go back to the first five books of the Old Testament. The Pentateuch, the Torah. And there you find writings of Moses that are of Jesus. 
Heavens, the tabernacle passage, is a passage about Jesus. If you don't believe that, how are you going to believe Jesus? Where else? Look at John chapter 3. John chapter 3, Jesus says, John chapter 3, 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. People have been sick. They're snake bit. They're dying. Moses lifts up the serpent. And anybody who looks at it is healed. Why? Because God had an interest in pushing serpent worship? Why? Because God wanted to see if Moses could hold a serpent up? Why? Because, hey, just was the artistic moment? No. Because it spoke of Jesus. But for Jesus, it's not from a snake bite that we're healed. But it's from the snake's deception and the sin of Adam and Eve. Whoever believes in him gets the life eternal. Um, there are more. Uh, John 6, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the manna. It is my Father that gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus is the bread of life. He is born in Bethlehem, Bethlehem, house of bread. That's what it means in Hebrew. John struck this theme over and over and over. Jesus and Moses. Jesus and Moses. Um, If we could go back to the the PowerPoint, please. Okay, we didn't get even as far as I hope, but we got some far. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go straight to the points for home now. And we're going to pick up next week. And I'll try to add a little more juice so that you don't just read it and say, I don't have to go today, I read it. Okay? So if your spouse says to you, hey, we don't have to go today, I read it. You say, no, no, he promised more juice. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You know a ramification of this? Jesus was not plan B. Jesus was there at creation, eyes open. You know, it's John who tells us, The words of Jesus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that's a very humble way for Jesus, the humble king, to say it. But I'm not Jesus. And so I look at it not as an humble Jesus. I look at it as his servant. And it is true what he said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But there's an equal truth to that that the humble Jesus would not say. Jesus so loved the world that he came. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus so loved the world that he came. Jesus was never a plan B. With creation in place, before creation started, there was an awareness of God of the price that would have to be paid were God to create people who are independent, 
who are able to make decisions and who are able to choose for themselves how they would live. And God paid that price. Eyes open. It amazes me. Amazing love. Amazing grace. All of the songs with amazing. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And wonder how he could love me. It's an amazing story. I hope. No. It's an amazing fact. I hope we never lose track of. Point for home two. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and Jesus' righteousness. Nothing less. Hey, Pastor David unleashed it this morning. He's been doing it. We're suffering under the weight of oppression of Romans 1, 2, and 3, 1 through 20 until he gets to Romans 3, 21. And the blood of Jesus and the righteousness of Christ comes. Final point. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. John says, and we beheld his glory. My question for you and my question for me is this. Am I beholding the glory of God? Is my life a life that's beholding the glory of God? I prayed for my children this morning when I woke up. And I prayed that each of my children today, all across this globe, would somehow have an encounter with God today. It is Sunday. It is resurrection day. The tomb is empty. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. It is my hope and my prayer and my, my, my plea before God. That we have an encounter with Jesus Christ. Beholding the glory of one who loves us so. That it transforms who we are. Because we want to reflect that love to this world. A gospel that comes with aging. Let's appreciate it as we go along. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm reminded of how much... Of how wonderful it is when you've got something that's fantastic to get even more. And I pray that we will have appreciation to you. that you, Thanking you for Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Thank you, Lord, for the wonderful gospel stories. But thank you, Father, that you gave us more. We thank you for the gospel of John. We thank you for the countless people throughout history that have felt it important enough to handwrite and to copy this gospel over and over for the opportunity, Father, to have it in our language translated. And for the message that's there, we stand amazed before you in all of your provision, in all of your love, and we bow humbly before you as your children in honor of who you are. Through our Lord Jesus, the Word. Amen.